welcome to the Thankful Homemaker Podcast, a podcast to be an encouragement and blessing to each other in the role God has called us to as women. I'm so thankful you stopped by, so grab yourself a coffee or tea and sit with me a bit as we talk about how God's Word impacts every area of our lives as Christian women. Hello, friend. I'm Marcy Farrell from ThankfulHomemaker.com, and I'm so glad to be with you today. We are continuing on in our long series on the Sermon on the Mount, and it has been so good for me to study through, and I pray that the series has been a blessing for you too. We still find ourselves in Matthew chapter 5 on this episode, and we are actually going to finish chapter 5 with this episode. So we started chapter 5 with the first episode on the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount with episode 86 here at the podcast, and it came out on September 22nd of 2020. So we're not quite two years into the series, we're getting close. But if you're just joining us for the first time and you can make some extra time, I'd so encourage you to at least listen into episode 86 as it lays down the foundation for this text we've been working through and we'll continue to work through for a while. So I will make sure to link that in the show notes. And then also, if you happen to be wondering why a podcast titled Thankful Homemaker is spending time working through such a long text of scripture and not just talking about cleaning schedules and routines and menu planning, because I do have podcasts on all those things and why what we do in our homes matters. But the reason I'm camping in this text is because the time that we spend studying and understanding how to properly apply God's word, that's going to have the greatest impact in our homes and within our families. As the Lord changes our heart attitudes to line up with his that's when the gospel is going to impact how we love our husband and children and others and how we care for our homes. So my hope in this series is to really just whet your appetite to continue to dig deeper into God's word for yourself. My desire is always to point you back to truth and encourage you in your walk with the Lord. My tagline summarizes it, gospel-driven encouragement for homemakers. So today's text takes us through another one of Jesus' teachings that is familiar to those inside and outside the church. We are in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48, and we're going to walk through today what it looks like to love our enemies and to love those who hate us and persecute us. This also brings us to the last of Jesus's, you heard that it was said, but I say to you statements. This has been a hard chapter and really makes us take a look inward at the attitudes of our hearts, from anger to lust to our selfish tendencies, now to how we think and address those we would consider our enemies. Let me read the text for you today, and as always, I'm reading out of the ESV version, starting in verse 43 in Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
This text continues with what might seem like radical teachings of Jesus, and I am sure the scribes and the Pharisees were shocked by this statement, just like they were the others in this sermon of Jesus's so far. I would go so far to say they were probably even pretty hostile to it. But we're reminded that we're not hearing anything new from the Lord. Jesus isn't adding any new content. He is just explaining the full intent of the law of God, which was originally given and which the scribes and the Pharisees had so turned into such a narrow interpretation and they redefined it. Our God has created us in his image, and this image is stamped on every human being, whether they are a child of God or not. But now as those who have come to be known by God through repentance of our sins and faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, we are now called to live in such a way as to mirror and reflect the character of God. And before we dig in here, I want our hearts to be set on how our loving our good God, how our, I should say, how our loving good God, how he relates to us. Because sometimes we forget this. We were by nature enemies of God, and yet he has shown his love even when we were his enemies. I want to start here because this is key. Romans 5.10 tells us, for if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? God has shown us great mercy, and he's shown great mercy to a people who were unthankful and sinful and undeserving. He didn't return evil for evil against us. We were shown mercy. And this is the pattern Jesus is teaching us to display. It's the same pattern the Lord graciously showed us as undeserving, sinful enemies of God. We are to be imitators of Jesus, who is God incarnate, God in the flesh, right? And we are to reflect his image to a lost and dying world. And one way we do that is by loving our enemies. And let me state, this is another key thing, that loving our enemies doesn't mean that you're going to have these warm, affectionate feelings for them. You may, that may be a mighty work of God, but it, it doesn't mean that. Loving them is defined most times, I should say even love in general, is defined most times in the Bible as a verb, more than a noun, as it is here. So we can say that we are to be loving towards our enemies. So our first verse here of Matthew 5, 43 states, as I'm going to start walking through this text with you, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Okay, we find this direct quote in Leviticus 19.18, but nowhere do we find in the Old Testament, the second half of that verse, that the religious leaders added to that teaching where it says, and hate your enemy. Those tricky scribes and Pharisees are added again, right? Adding to the law. They were defining a neighbor as a fellow Jew. And so the mandate given back there in Leviticus to them, it didn't apply to Gentiles or foreigners. They were adding to God's command. One commentator stated on this, he said, moreover, they felt that God's direction of their historic relations with other peoples, such as his command to exterminate the Canaanites and the imprecatory Psalms, that, that these, these things supported, even called for the hatred of others. And what they were failing to take into account was the fact that those and similar commands, including the imprecatory Psalms, were judicial, not individual. God's word is clear in the Old Testament to do good to your enemy. Exodus 23, 4 through 5 states, If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, 
You shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. Proverbs 21, 25, 21 tells us, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. We have an example in the New Testament from Jesus in the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. Martin Lloyd-Jones states on this example um, of the Good Samaritan, he said the Jews traditionally hated the Samaritans and were their bitter enemies. However, our Lord tells us in the parable that when the Jew was attacked by thieves and robbers on the road between Jericho and Jerusalem, several Jews passed by and did not help him. But the Samaritan, the traditional enemy, went across the road and cared for him and did everything for him. That is loving our neighbor and our enemy. Who is my neighbor? Any man who is in need, any man who is done through sin and anything else. We must help him, whether he is a Jew or a Samaritan. Love your neighbor, even if it means loving your enemy. Do good to those who hate you. And he continues, and our Lord, of course, not only taught it, but he did it. There we see him dying upon the cross. And what has he to say about those men who are condemned him to that, that who condemned him to that, and who drove in the cruel nails? These are the blessed words that come from his holy lips. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So, my friend, this, this whole chapter is so good in, in Martin Lloyd-Jones' book. It's um, his studies in the Sermon on the Mount on this particular text. If you have that book, sit with this chapter for a moment. And if not, put this book on your wish list, maybe for Christmas or your birthday. It's just a good resource to have on hand. So in Matthew chapter 5, working down in verses 44 to 47, we're going to look at what the Lord is teaching us about love. So verse 44 starts and it says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So love here in that verse in Matthew 5, 44 is agape, and it's a love that gives without return. So we're called to love our enemies, whether or not they are lovable. This requires a denial of self and denying responding to our fleshly feelings, right? Agape love is selfless. God is our perfect example of showing undeserving people sacrificial love. Just look at Jesus. We can only truly love others by God's grace. And this kind of agape love is truly selfless as it's thinking of others before itself. Love here is also in the present imperative. So Jesus here is commanding that this supernatural love is to be our continual practice or our lifestyle. Love is a fruit of the Spirit and it's given to all of us in Christ as one commentator stated, and I love this sentence, listen to this, it is impossible, but is him possible with a capital H there. John Piper explains in his articles, when, when is it right to repay evil with pain? Two main reasons why we should love our enemies. I'll link to this full article in the show notes. I just want to read an excerpt from it with you here. He states that the first one is it that it reveals something of the way God is. God is merciful. He makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. He says, be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. 
So when Christians live this way, we show something of what God is like. And the second reason is that the hearts, the hearts of Christians are satisfied with God and are not driven by the craving for revenge or self-exaltation or money or earthly security. God has become our all-satisfying treasure. And so we don't treat our adversaries out of our own sense of need and insecurity, but out of our own fullness with, that, with the satisfying glory of God. Hebrews 10.34 says, You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. And he kind of put in parentheses there, that is without retaliation, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So what takes away the compulsion of revenge is our deep confidence that this world is not our home and that God is our utterly sure and all satisfying reward. One more little excerpt here. It says, so in both these reasons for loving our enemy, we see the main thing. God is shown to be who he really is as a merciful God and as gloriously all satisfying. And the ultimate reason for being merciful is to glorify God, to make him look great, in the eyes of man. So I will link that in the show notes for you. Kent Hughes also shared from his commentary in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus's call to love one, one's enemies is supremely radical. He states to return evil for evil, or let me start that again, to return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. To return good for evil is divine. And that is so true, right? To love an enemy is divine and to pray for an enemy or a persecutor is supremely divine. The fact that the text mentions enemies plural suggests that Jesus means personal enemies who are presently doing us harm. This is amazing teaching. To the man on the street, the mere idea of loving his enemies is absurd and offensive and beyond his capability. It offends his natural sense of right and wrong. To those under the Old Testament law, the idea of loving one's enemies was completely contrary to the perception of God's law, which they thought required rejection and hatred of enemies. It was a limited love. Jesus commanded a love without limits that loves everyone regardless of what they say or do to us. This is revolutionary, whatever one's culture, right? In fact, if practiced by you and me, he says, he continues, he says, it would change our entire community. So my friend, why are we to love like this? Jesus tells us in verses 45 through 47, 45 starts with, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven, for he makes his sunrise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So in verse 45, we're told to love like this because we will be like our father, right? Like father, like son, and we will resemble our father in heaven. Ephesians 5.1 tells us, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Romans 2.11 tells us, for God shows no partiality. As his children, we are to show no partiality. When we love without limits, we become like God. And in verses um, 46 and 47, we're reminded that, that it distinguishes us from how the world loves. It's so easy to love those who love us, right? We can do that pretty easily in our flesh. But what about those who are not easy to love? What about even thinking here, not just of your enemies, but just difficult people to be around, just challenging people that are hard in our lives. I mean, even I get this, we are talking about our enemies, those people that really hate us and persecute us and slander us and just do a lot of damage to us. But 
uh, just in general, think you're difficult people, how we respond. Martin Lloyd-Jones stated, he said, we can emphasize that put, that by putting it like this, the Christian is the man who is above and goes beyond the natural man at his very best and highest. He says, there are many people in the world who are not Christian, but who are very moral and highly ethical, men whose word is their bond and who are scrupulous and honest, just and upright. You never find them doing a shady thing to anybody, but they are not Christian and they say so. They do not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and may have rejected the whole of the New Testament teaching with scorn, but they are absolutely straightforward, straightforward, honest and true. Now the Christian, by definition here, is a man who is capable of doing something that the best natural man cannot do. He goes beyond and does more than that. He exceeds. He's separate from all others and not only from the worst among others, but from the very best and the highest among them. Kent Hughes had us ask ourselves, is there a quote, he said, more in my love? Is there something about my love that cannot be explained in natural terms? Is there something special and unique about my love to others that is not present in the life of the unbeliever? He stated that these are, they're important. And let me add here, these are convicting questions because if there isn't a more to our love, if we love only those with whom we have something in common and who treat us well, if there's nothing more than that, he says, we are perhaps not Christian at all. And again, we're not talking about perfection here, but exhibiting more. We are to practice unlimited love. Love here is addressing the will. It means when we have a desire to retaliate, right? That because of love, because of that more love, we're going to have a desire then to do the opposite. We're not going to allow that desire to retaliate, to take over. Um, we're not going to let our flesh rule. We're going to let the spirit rule. So when people lie and slander us, we're going to bless them, as Jesus says. Our words to them should direct them heavenward. We want to return words of goodness and kindness. We want to look for areas to do good to them. Take them a meal if they're in need or send them a card if they need encouragement. This is not easy. This is truly supernatural. And please, I'm speaking to my own heart here today because this is really hard stuff. Um, if you have those in your life who are hurtful to you and their words and their interactions, take the time to pray for them. Here's our reality. If we waited until we love someone to pray for them, we would probably never pray for them. So as you pray for those who have done you harm, here's the key that we forget sometimes. When we're praying for somebody, love truly does begin to kindle in our hearts. And I have experienced this. I know that God works that way, that this is the best way to begin to love someone who hates you. Pray for them. Pray for their salvation. Pray that they would have a change of heart towards you. Pray for forgiveness in your heart and that bitterness would not set in towards them, that you would battle that. Pray that all would go well with them. So agape love here, again, doesn't mean that we may necessarily ever be these close, tight-knit friends, by maybe not even necessarily friends at all necessarily, but it will be a desire to do good to them, and it's going to be lived out tangibly. Uh, one commentator shared a story of this missionary family, and they returned home to find that their, the house where they lived, their neighbors were very challenging. So they're away on this missionary journey. They come home and the house that they left behind, these new people move in and it's 
really hard. These people were causing a lot of havoc in the neighborhood. They were foul in language. They didn't care for their home, and they could care less about the neighborhood. And at one point, the kids from this family threw a can of orange paint on this missionary family's home. So to say that this missionary family was not happy and pretty angry with this family was pretty mild. But the wife and the family was not happy that the Lord put her there, and really, and this family there more so. And realizing that her heart wasn't right, she got down on her knees and she went to the Lord in prayer and she said, Lord, you know that I do not like these people at all. God, help me to love them. She said she didn't feel different, but she was resolved to exercise love to them. Her love became tangible here, right? She baked them a pie and she just began caring for them and praying for them. They didn't change, but she did. She began to love them. And when they moved, she wept. So that is what we talked about as Kent Hughes talked about the more of love. That is the more of love. And we close our last verse with verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So we are not only not to be like the world and those in the world, but we are to be like Jesus. We have a therefore in verse 48. So Jesus is basing this all on what he just described on what characteristics should be demonstrated in the life of a Christian. As Charles Spurgeon stated, stretch towards the highest conceivable standard and be not satisfied until you reach it. So this is not what some may interpret as a future command. I've seen that in some of the commentaries. Jesus is intending this as an exhortation to all that he has just said. He is calling us to be perfect as his heavenly Father is perfect. I get it. In heaven, we will be perfect, but right now we will not be, but we are to be striving for it. So this is Jesus is calling us right now in the here and now to be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. And God's standard has always been perfect holiness. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 to 16 says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So the word here for perfect is teleos, and it's often translated mature. And I probably pronounced that Greek word wrong, but it's T-E-L-E-I-O-S. And it, it is often translated as mature. But in the context, the meaning is that of perfection, because the heavenly father is the standard. So we we need to measure ourselves not by others, but by the father to be perfect here. It's essentially the sum of all that Jesus teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount. And ultimately is the sum of all that's taught in scripture. The quote, sons are to be perfect as their heavenly father is perfect. And that perfection is absolute perfection. It includes our words, our responses to injuries, our dealings with our enemies, The great purpose of salvation and the goal of the gospel and the great desire of the Father is that men would be conformed to the image of his Son, the only one who ever lived a perfect life. So if a man could live the way Jesus has told us to in this chapter, he truly would be perfect. So perfection is our continual goal in this life, but in the life to come, it'll be our everlasting possession and experience. And James Montgomery Boyce explains that in order to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, he says, you must turn away from your own efforts completely and receive instead the perfection, which God has already taken steps to provide for you. Nothing that you will ever do will be perfect. Only what God does is perfect. Hence, if you are to reach the perfection, which God requires, it must be as the result of his working for you and in you. He says in the 18th Psalm, David speaks of perfection twice, once of God's perfection and once of man's. 
And the point of the verses is that God is responsible for both kinds. In Psalm 1830, David writes, as for God, his way is perfect. Then two verses farther on, he adds, it is God who arms me with strength with strength, and makes my way perfect. And that's Psalm 1832. Who is God? God is the one who is perfect. What does he do? God works to perfect sinful men. And in his sermon, God's Timing for Comforting, Spurgeon writes, he says, though you cannot be perfect, yet you must want to be perfect. And there must not be any sin which you knowingly spare. Cut them in pieces, every one of them, as soon as you know anything you know that anything is wrong. He says, I pray you to have such a tender conscience that you will seek to escape from it. For as long as you harbor even one of them, comfort will never come to you. So my dear friend, outside of Christ, we can never love our enemies and do all these other things Jesus has walked us through so far in our time here in Matthew chapter five. It is impossible, right? Outside of Christ, we not only can't do this, we don't even want to try. So Jesus has told us in these past six sessions that our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. And the only one who can do this perfectly has to be perfect. And the only one who is like this is Christ. And this needs to bring us to worship before Jesus, to fall at his feet, the only one who is perfect, and to put our faith fully in his perfect righteousness. Jesus is pointing us in this sermon not to just the one who's preaching this perfect standard of righteousness, but he's pointing us to the one who is the provision of this perfect righteousness as well. It's Jesus. So if we're in Christ, my dear friend, we are not left to ourselves. Jesus has taken residence up inside our hearts, and he's changing us from the inside out. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, you are but a branch of the vine. Power and life and sustenance are there. You are simply to bear the fruit. He also says, did you notice the way our Lord puts it? He says, I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Why? That you may be like God? No, that you may be the children, and not even of God. You may be children of your Father which is in heaven. God has become the father to the Christian. Hear this, my dear sister. Listen to this. He is not the father of the non-Christian. He is God to them and nothing else, the great lawgiver. But to the Christian, God is father. He says, and then again, our Lord doesn't say, be ye therefore perfect, even as God uh, God in heaven is perfect. No, thank God. But he says, but be ye therefore perfect, even as your father, which is in heaven, is perfect. If God is your father, you must be special. You cannot help it. If the divine nature is in you and has entered into you through the Holy Spirit, you cannot be like anybody else. You must be different, end quote there. So what about us? Do we resemble our father? Are we striving to be like him in all areas of our lives? Are we blessing those who curse us? Are we praying for our enemies? Are we loving like Jesus has called us and shown us and set the example of how we are to love? As we shared in the story earlier, praying for our enemies doesn't mean they will change, but it will change us. There will be more and more of a family likeness to our Father. Those whom, for whom we truly pray will become objects of our conscious love. 
Luke 10, 27 is the perfect way to close in our time here today because it summarizes the essence of Jesus' teaching in this section that we've worked through. How do we love our neighbor as ourself, right? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So can this be said of us? So my dear friend, thank you for your time today. And Jesus truly is enough. I'm so grateful to be here with you. And I pray we we all have much to ponder as we meditate on these verses. And we do pray for our enemies. I, I think we need to be praying, God, help me to love them. Show me how to love them. And faithfully by God's grace that we tangibly live that out. If you'd like a little more group interaction and a smaller group setting and accountability in your walk with the Lord, consider joining us in the Homemaking Matters community. We work through various areas each month together. We tear through scripture. We're studying through 1 Peter right now. And we really work on to spur each other on to love and good deeds in our time um, with the Lord and in the care of our homes and our families. You can get all the details at homemakingmatters.com and I'll link to it in the show notes too. And I will be back next month. Um, as we start Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, and we continue with Jesus' teaching about life in the kingdom. And we're going to work through now, or really how now, being children of our Father in heaven, right? What do our lives look like as we walk around along this way in this pilgrim life that we're, that we're in? And Martin Lloyd-Jones shared that chapter 6 has two great divisions. He said the directly religious part of the Christian life and the mundane, and that they are both vital areas we need to be clear about as believers and that we need instruction in them both. So I'm really looking forward to moving into this Matthew, this next chapter with you guys of chapter 6. Some of my favorite verses are in this chapter too. So I do pray, my dear friend, that you have a very blessed week. Mm-hmm.